Thank you guys. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I was talking to my mom. No, I... You know, we, uh, as we're digging into Revelation, by the way, if you have a Bible, open up to uh, Revelation chapter 2 as we continue our series. You know, as we go through Revelation, we're reminded of what is to come, uh, we're reminded of the world that we live in, and um, we live in a broken world. And uh, Mother's Day is this day, sometimes I feel a lot of pastoral pressure. Um, do we make it special enough for our moms? It's like, uh, I, have, I have one mom that I need to make it special for. I don't want to feel the pressure of everybody else's. But we also, um, we live in a broken world. And so there are those who are hurting. Uh, loss of moms, um, a mom that wasn't so great. Um, maybe the dream of motherhood not fulfilled. And so as we, as we dig into Revelation and we're reminded of the brokenness, I thought just before we jump in this morning, let's just pray. Um, pray for our time together, but also just praying for those that are hurting this morning as well. Let's remember those um, whose hearts are heavy today. So let's pray. God, we thank you for an opportunity that we have to come and, and to worship together. We're reminded of your love uh, through uh, sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. As we dig into your word, we're constantly reminded of our brokenness and our sin and the fallenness of the world that we live in. And that it becomes evident on a day like today when we celebrate moms. We, we know that some are hurting. Some are feeling the pain of loss. Some are feeling the pain of abuse. Some are feeling the pain of dreams unfulfilled. And so, Lord, we're reminded that you love us, that you are redeeming us, and that you are restoring us. And so in that, we lean in today praying for your restoration work on those who are hurting this morning. Uh, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, we're in Revelation chapter 2, the church in Pergamum, and uh, this is our third church. If you're visiting with us, we're going through Revelation a little bit verse by verse for the first four chapters, and then uh, systematically looking at some themes in Revelation. Uh, we're not doing the end times chart. We're trying to stick with some of the focuses of the text, not trying to uh, remind everybody of, of their favorite end time course that they took once before. Uh, but we're really focusing on challenging our own thoughts on Revelation, uh, how we relate to the world in which we live in. And so uh, in this uh, text, as we dig in, we're reminded really uh, this morning, again, from chapter one, who Jesus is, that he is walking amongst the churches. And I came across this uh, Calvin and Hobbes uh, comic this week. I, I don't know if any of you remember the old Calvin and Hobbes. They were my favorite. Um, and so uh, we have one here, and uh, Calvin uh, is being philosophical. And he says, Hobbes, do you think our morality is defined by our actions or by what's in our hearts? Hobbes answers, I think our actions show what's in our heart. Calvin's thinking for a minute. I resent that. You know, we, we would really like to just think, especially churchgoers, I have to say. Um, you know, our heart is given to Jesus. Our heart is washed by the blood of the Lamb, and my actions are just kind of my actions. No, our actions are, Hobbes is correct, right? A result of what's in 
the heart. Um, I was reading a, a book, um, I'm always reading a book on, on biblical interpretation, and the author was talking about how we interpret by our culture. And uh, he was teaching in a uh, different country, a Bible class, and he gave an exam. And he was surprised by how many of the students left multiple choice answers empty. And so as he was passing back the exam, he said to one of the students, you left number four blank. And he said, yeah, I didn't know the answer. Which the professor said, why didn't you guess? He said, because if I guessed correctly, you would have believed that I knew the answer, and that would be lying. And, and the author said, I began to form my argument and realized he was on better moral ground than I was. And in our culture, right, we're taught from an early age, if you don't know, guess, you have a chance, right? Now, I say that because sometimes we read all this stuff culturally, and we think that doesn't apply to us, this is Pergamum, you know, this type of thing. So I want us to really remember that we are putting ourselves here in the text. So Revelation chapter 2 we're in verse 12, and the angel, uh, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember, coming from uh, chapter 1, verse 16. And it's going to repeat again in chapter 19, verse 15. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Um, the point here, again, with this imagery from who Jesus is in chapter 1 into each of the churches, we're grabbing something from the character and works of Jesus that were mentioned in chapter 1 here. It's this sharp two-edged sword, which clearly has to do with judgment. When we hear sharp two-edged sword, we think of the word of God. When Revelation 19 talks about the two-edged sword, it's talking about judgment. So it's Jesus' words in judgment. And so we're reminded that the point is that Jesus is the true final judge, and he knows our heart and our actions. Both are evident in the text today. A little introduction about Pergamum. Um, it, is, uh, it was one of the leading religious centers in Asia. Here's more of a current picture. You can see the uh, Colosseum type of, of, of uh, 
auditorium seating there that went up the side of the mountain. It looks like the sea is off in the background. That's actually the modern city there. Um, there was so many different temples in Pergamum. As you're looking up at the mountain from the city, uh, you would see to the right uh, an altar to Zeus, which is about 40 feet high. Uh, Zeus was the, the king of the gods or known as the king of the gods. Uh, there was a temple to Athena, the goddess of victory, a temple to Dionysus, the patron god of dynasty, uh, a temple to, I can't pronounce this one, Aslophus, a god of healing. Uh, There's a large medical center type of, for that day, people came there for healing. Um, and it was also at the center, at the top of these stairs, uh, would have been uh, the center for the imperial cult. Now, I need to say a little bit about the imperial cult because it's going to kind of come into um, I, I think here in Revelation, uh, the imperial cult recognized Roman emperors as divinely placed leaders. Uh, the Roman constitution and the emperors served as divine uh, directors and protectors. Uh, later, em emperors actually obtained divine status while they were still living. And there was, uh, according to one author, three main ideas. And the imperial cult, right, which kind of crossed in religion with governance. The three main ideas was the gods have chosen Rome. Second, Rome and its emperor uh, are agents of the gods' rule, will, salvation, and presence among the human beings. And third, Rome manifests the gods' blessing, security, peace, justice, uh, faithfulness, fertility. Um, so among those who submit to the Roman rule, then you're blessed. If the constitution and the emperor is divine, to go against the interests of Rome was not only treason, but it was sin, right? You're going against the gods. An interesting note, the Christians were often called atheists in Pergamum. Uh, reason being, there's so many gods in here. You believe in one? Right? You must be an atheist. Um, and so this is, this is the, the, the culture of Pergamum. Uh, um, so we have uh, the church in Pergamum, uh, the words here of the two-edged sword. Again, this is the idea of this judgment of uh, Christ's words. And the point here is that Jesus is the final true judge who knows our hearts and actions. He, in verse 13, John addresses some strengths. This has just been kind of the pattern we've been going through here in Revelation. The strengths here, I, I know where you dwell. Uh, I know where you make your home. I know the challenges and the conditions in which you live. In fact, notice he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I mean, I, that is pr pretty direct there. Um, and I, I want to stick to the text. I actually know a pastor who, uh, who was preaching on this, and it was in a, a city in Southern California, and uh, the church had a... It was a beach town, and the young families couldn't afford to buy homes there. Well, what happened is the church would be growing, and then the young families, as they got kind of promoted in their business, they would move out to the valley where they could afford to buy houses. And it really kind of, I mean, it was a natural progression. But the pastor watching all these young families leave became very frustrated with it. And so he took this passage, and he, he was kind of trying to relate, like, this is where Satan's throne is. And you're moving away instead of fighting the fight. So I don't see that in the text. So what is Satan's throne? Well, 
Unfortunately, there's about five different translations, interpretations of that. Um, some would say the typology of, of Pergamum kind of lent itself to looking like a throne that's not really evident. Um, I just read all these different idols and altars and shrines. Uh, we can see the idol worship in that town. It was huge, but that was true of the other cities that we're looking at as well. Uh, Zeus, uh, sometimes depicted with legs of serpent, that kind of leads him to uh, being a possibility there, especially since there's this 40-foot high throne for Zeus in this city. Um, the city. Uh, the god of healing uh, is also assembled as a serpent. Um, but I think the imperial cult does come to a little bit more prominence. We, we like to avoid that one um, because then we also have to look at ourselves. Um, but think of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. If you look at this passage, speaking of the name of Jesus, um, it's, it's mentioned twice, or in, implied in here once and, and mentioned once. Um, whose name, are, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Right? We're talking about a different kingdom, and I, I think this is a, a bigger aspect of this text um, then we, we, Rome had this belief that they were the God's chosen nation. Therefore, what they did in war and treating people was from the gods, therefore justified. And so he says to these group of people who are standing for the one true God, I know where you dwell. Second, I know your faithfulness. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet... Uh, you hold fast my name. Hold fast there. It means to, to grasp firmly. I'm talking about remaining firm. Again, that idea of Jesus' name, 38 times in Revelation. Okay? Now, I teach Bible study methods. One of the first things I try to teach the kids, look for repetition. Here it is. Here's a major theme of Revelation. The name of Jesus. It talks about his identity, his reputation, his glory. And it's contrasted at the end with the believers. The believers get a new name at the end here. We'll talk about that. So I know your faithfulness. Second, I know your faith in hard times. And so he mentions that they're holding fast here. And then he says that you did not deny my faith, uh, did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among us. We don't know anything else about that. Okay, it's just stated there. But he is identified as a faithful witness. Um, the Greek word, martis. We get our word martyr from. But notice, it's the same word that's used in chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Who also, in a sense, right, gave his life. The word martyr didn't really come out till later as that interpretation of the way we think of the word martyr, but it has the idea of witness. We can see that in both, right? You're a faithful witness, martyr to the end. And so again, we have this repetition of when, where Satan dwells. And so we have this death of this person who remains faithful. Uh, they become a martyr for Jesus Christ. And then we have this, this explanation, in a sense. Um, he says, 
who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He, Satan is the origin of this hate towards believers. So the strengths. I know where you dwell. I know your faithfulness, that you're holding firm. And I know that you're even faithful when things are hard, when, when things become, uh, persecution comes in. You, you remain faithful. You're hanging in there. And these are always really hard because you go, man, those sound like really solid. You know, this is good stuff. Like, this is a great church. And then there's the but. Right? So here we go into the weaknesses. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, practice sexual immorality, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which we talked a little bit about a couple weeks ago. Um, the one question here we have in the text that we need to wrestle with, first of all, are there two groups, that is, those who are following the teaching of Balaam and those who are following the teaching of the Nicolaitans, or is there one group? And I would hold that this phrase in verse 15, so also you, I believe that what John is doing is a typology. He is saying, here from the Old Testament is Balaam, and here is how it's happening here in the New Testament, or in these times, of these Nicolaitans. He's making some similar remarks. Now, I said we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, but we do know a lot about Balaam, uh, in the sense that he's kind of an odd, popular character in the Old Testament. If you're doing the Old Testament reading, we're going to get to him next week. And so Balaam is this prophet, if you will, not of God, I would say. And this prophet, this king wants to, uh, to get uh, Israel in some, some trouble. He's worried about them. So he calls for Balaam and he says, come curse Israel for me and I'll pay you really well. So Balaam, if you remember, gets on, uh, God says, don't go. God tells this guy, don't go, don't do this. Um, and he's kind of wrestling through this, and he ends up on his donkey. You remember Balaam and his donkey, and the angel stops him? Well, Balaam finally gets to the king, and he says, go ahead and curse them for me. And he gets up there, tries to curse them, and all he does is he blesses them. And the king's like, that's not what I'm paying you for. He goes, let me try again. Blesses them. King's like, seriously, you're becoming a problem here. Let me try one more time. Blesses them. At the end of the chapter, I believe it's uh, Numbers 24, uh, Balaam goes home. And in chapter 25, we have this story. I mean, all of a sudden, they just got these three blessings. And the Israelites are tempted by the Moabite women to come to a religious ceremony in which they eat food sacrificed to idols, involve themselves in idol worship, and sexual immorality. And there's a big judgment that comes. And later in Numbers, in fact, all the way down in chapter 31, Mo Moses says that that happened because of Balaam. So Balaam goes to the king at some point in time and says, this, this cursing thing isn't working out. I got an idea. You know how to trip up those Israelite men. Bring in some of those Moabite women. And so it, it works. In the end, the king gets his way. And so this is attributed to Balaam. Now, so what are the weaknesses? 
Again, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans, but we do learn something about these two being put together. First of all, there's a progression in these churches. When we look at the third, fourth, and fifth church, we see a progression of what is happening. If you look at verse 14, it says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. So in other words, you have a church, and there are some people who are holding to a different teaching. It doesn't say that the whole church is involved in it. It says that it's going on. There's an acceptance of it. In this next church, in verse 20, it says, um, find it, but you, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants. Now they're practicing it. I have patience there. I don't know why. You know, you can only fix my spelling errors if you know what I'm talking about. Right, Martha? Sorry. Practicing it. It's right on my notes. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, it says the angel, um, he says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. So there's the progression. You're tolerating it. You're, you're not doing anything about it. You're practicing it. You're dead. What, what is the practice that this church and false teaching is bringing about? First of all, and most obviously, is just a disregard for the word of God. Now, we don't need to go back there right now, but if you, if you want to go back and read Acts chapter 15, if you remember the whole the Gentile and Jewish confusion about which laws they're supposed to, to obey, the apostles write a letter to the Gentile churches in Acts chapter 15, and they just say, hey, look, we would like you to abstain from sexual immorality, eating food sacrificed to idols, specifically blood, and the worship of idols. Love God, love people. Go for it, guys, but just, you know, avoid. And what do we have this church doing? All three of those things. Idol worship, meat sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality. So it's, it's just a disregard for the word of God. And why, why do we do that? Why did Israel, why was Israel tempted by the Moabite women? I think I know what it is. More than that, it's just a desire to fit into the culture. We want to be like those that are around us. Look, if you, if you want to be in the group in Pergamum that makes the decisions, if you want to be in the elite crowd in Pergamum, if you want to buy and sell with the movers and shakers in Pergamum, then you're going to have to go to some imperial cult parties in which all these things are happening. Well, we got to live. We got to eat. We got to make a living. There's a desire to fit in. And in short, we, we get involved in sin because we exchange the promises of God for the pleasures of sin. Now, I had the unfortunate experience of growing up in church youth groups. And uh, there's not always a lot of great theology in church youth groups, I'm just going to say. Some of you, you want to beg to differ, but I grew up in them. And um, they tried to convince us that sin was bad and not fun. I only agree with half of that statement. 
Look, sin brings temporary pleasures. Sin often fills a hole in our identity, something that we think we're looking for, whether it's acceptance or pleasure or um, a place. And so um, sin brings temporary pleasure. God makes promises for fulfillment, for joy, and for future. But often what people are doing is selling the, uh, entering into the temporary and selling out the eternal. Um, sometimes sin is just meeting a felt need instead of living in the community, loving your brother as yourself. And then what we see here with the Nicolaitans, and we've talked about this, and it's been kind of a bigger issue. My wife and I were talking about it the other day as we were driving out to a hike, and part of this idea of apostasy and these things that are happening in the the church today, we've talked about some of these progressive ideas, and what happens is one thing, it's one thing to believe something, it's another thing to seek converts. It's another thing to say, come follow me in what I have found, and that's what we continue to find, and God judges that more severely, and so they're seeking converts. And you know what I have often found is that sin loves company. Um, Sin loves company. The more people I get on board, the better I feel about it. So I didn't want to take a minute, and I'm going to step away from from Revelation chapter 2 just for a second, and I want to talk about the purpose of the church. Ephesians chapter 2. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. Many of you are familiar with this passage, um, but it's a good, just a good reminder this morning. Uh, verse 11, and he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to a measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's just a few things. The church is supposed to produce spiritual maturity. These teachers and prophets and evangelists are supposed to equip other people to do the work of the ministry to bring about maturity. That's the process. And that, that maturity develops a Christian community where we grow in unity, we grow in love for one another, we grow in practicing the one another's, creating an environment to, to practice and grow so that we're not like children anymore. Look, what is your home, parents? One of the things is it's a training ground. Right? We, your kids are supposed to make mistakes in your home so they don't make them out in the community. It's supposed to be a place of learning. The church 
It's that place where we grow and we learn. We, uh, it, it, the church is to promote a commitment to, to vision, to kingdom living. This whole body, verse 16, joined and held together in every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow. It's this idea of, of kingdom living. It's encouraging us to use our, our gifts and exercise our spiritual, uh, spiritual gifts in serving the Lord. And it's to experience growth. Makes the body grow. Healthy things grow. And so here's the church. And in Pergamum, we have a group of people. God knows where they dwell. They've been faithful even during the hard times, but there's a group of people who are teaching a false doctrine who are in the church, and the church is kind of going, let them be them. They're expressing themselves differently. It's not my job, and they're ignoring it. And so the call comes. And the call doesn't come to the group, it comes to the church. Verse 16, therefore, repent. The call is to repent. Again, repent is is a change of action, which in this case, the change of action is stop overlooking the false teachers. How do we do that? We, We have to know the truth, We have to be willing to call out sin in the community, and we need to practice real love for one another. So repent. There's a change of action that happens here. Notice the warning. Therefore, verse 16, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them. Do you hear that? Change in pronouns there. I will come to you And I will wage war against them. Well, that sounds nice. Good. We don't have to do anything. Let me just put that in another context. Okay, moms, what does it mean when you walk into your kid's room and you say, if you don't pick this up, I will? The kid's not going to go, oh, that sounds like a good option. I don't have to do it. They, They might. It's a poor choice, right, moms? What do you mean? I'm bringing in the trash can. This is gone. Jesus says, either you take care of this, I will. You're not going to go, okay, Jesus, thank you. He is saying to the body, you need to do something about this. I will come to you. I will war with them. Now, there's some blessings as well. Uh, The promise. He says, uh, to the one who conquers, okay, remember this is the ones that remain faithful to the end, who continue on. Um, Major theme here in the churches. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. So let's just kind of go through this. First of all, to the one who hears, that means obey, by the way. Okay, that was what Rich, we didn't plan this, that was what Rich was getting at this morning, right? I heard you, I just wasn't listening, okay? And the Bible says, Rich, no, you didn't hear your mother, 
okay? In the Bible, hearing means obeying. Okay, can we just sit with that for a second? Well, I know the right thing. Good. But from a Hebrew point of view, knowing the right thing and not doing it means you didn't hear it. Okay, in which, by the way, moms, you would agree with that, right? Second, conquer. This is faithfulness to Jesus. Those who stay faithful, even in the hard times. One of the themes here. Okay? Third, we, uh, we have this reward. Uh, two are mentioned, manna and stone. And those mean, who knows? I, <laughs> wow. Let's just dig into this for a second. Okay? I, I think. I think the meaning is clear. Uh, the application is clear. I don't know that the, exactly what it is is very clear. Hidden manna commentaries had about four different interpretations for what the hidden manna was. Um, I learned this one. I hadn't heard this one before. There is a connection with Jewish tradition. And in Jewish tradition, Jeremiah, before the destruction of Solomon's temple, uh, was, again, this is not in the Old Testament that we read, okay, this is in Jewish tradition, but Jeremiah was told to go take the Ark of the Covenant and bury it under Mount Sinai uh, to hide it. And um, until later, Indiana Jones found it. But that's a, that's a whole different uh, tradition. <laughs> but in the Ark, right, would have been Aaron's budding uh, rod, which we actually think we read about this morning or, or the other day. Um, and then we would have had the... the uh, second edition of the Ten Commandments, and we would have had a jar with some manna in it. And so in Jewish tradition, uh, when the Messiah comes, he would place the ark back in the temple, and this manna from the ark represents future blessings, specifically what Isaiah 60 through 66 is talking about. So one, one tradition is that he's talking about this hidden manna that's in the ark underneath Mount Sinai. Uh, the other obvious is the Eucharist, communion bread, that um, comes up quite a bit. Uh, some would make a distinction just between spiritual food for strength during difficult times, i.e. persecution, and it's hidden to those who don't believe in Christ. They don't see the believer being energized and given strength by Christ. It's hidden to them. Um, another interesting one was Psalm 78, 25, re refers to manna being the bread of angels, and so what John might be doing here is making a distinction between spiritual food and food um, sacrificed to idols. Most would agree that it's some sort of, uh, whether it's communion or spiritual strength, would say it's this idea that, that Christ uh, is a provider in that. Now the white stone, more difficult. We've got about seven different options for the white stone. Another interesting Jewish tradition I learned this week, I hadn't heard this one either, uh, there was some Jewish tradition, uh, stone can also be translated jewel. Uh, there's a Jewish tradition that jewels fell with the manna in the desert. I, I hadn't heard that one before. Makes manna picking a little bit more interesting, doesn't it? Um, and so, or the jewels on the ephod of, of the priests. Um, in Roman times, in some court cases, Jewers cast uh, their vote by either a white stone, innocent, or a black stone, guilty. That's probably the most common interpretation. Uh, rocks were also used for tickets, okay? Paper was much more expensive, and so they were used for tickets into events. They were used for tickets into uh, cultic practices. 
Um, there's some reference to gladiators being given a, more of a bigger stone uh, with their um, discharge date on it. They're free from their service as gladiators, the service, incarceration, whatever you want to call it. Um, it it's also interesting that Pergamum is one of the leading uh, makers of um, parchment. And so there's a difference between temporal and, and um, eternal or you know, stone that lasts longer. I would say it has something to do with the, probably the jurors or, or the rocks being used to get into events. So what? He, the meaning is a little bit clearer to me. What are the three sins that we're wrestling with? Meat offered to the idols, idol worship, okay, and sexual immorality. Um, meat sacrificed to idols versus manna, Jesus is the better provider. Whatever that bread is, whatever you're going to get, however you want to interpret that, what Jesus provides is better. Can we agree on that? Second, sexual immorality versus the white stone. Intimacy with Jesus is better. Intimacy with Jesus. We seek so many different temporal pleasures instead of just the presence of Jesus Christ. Being known in the city or known by God. God's image is better than keeping up with the Joneses. I don't know what that name is. It's a secret name written on the stone. But God knows it, and he's giving it to me. Do you want to be known by God, or do you want to be known by your neighbor? Jesus is the true and final judge who knows our hearts and our actions. And as we think about the church, and as we think about man, groups that are teaching wrong doctrine, or groups that are acting inappropriately, how do we respond? You say, well, that's somebody else's problem. So we have leaders for. Somebody's got to take care of that. And so I would just ask you these three questions this morning. What do you permit? What do you see going on, know about, that you permit? You, you ignore it. What do you participate in? What do you participate in that you know is not glorifying to God? And you say, you know what, nobody else knows, or just a few people know, or, man, i got to fit in at work, or, you know, it's just, it's just the way of the world that we live in. Jesus walks amongst the churches. He's in our midst. And he knows what we do, and he knows the motivations behind it. And that might be encouraging for you, or it might be scary. The reality is, this idea of image and who's in control has existed since Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trust me, I know it's good and evil. Adam and Eve, no, we're going to define good and evil on our own. We're going to go at our own. We want to be in charge. And it's caused this separation. Now we live in a world where we're trying to please everybody in the world and we forget to please the God who created us and knows us deeply. And somehow we've become convinced that the sin makes us more human. 
to err is no. We've come to believe that though, haven't we? To be human, Jesus was the perfect human. And guess what? He didn't err. To sin doesn't make you more human. Sin makes you less human. Every time we sin, we become less like what the Creator intended. And the ends don't justify the means. What do you participate in and justify as it's just the world we live in? It's the way things get done. And where do you find your place? Where do you find your place? In other words, where's your identity, your belonging, your presence? The church in Pergamum is torn. Man, I, we got to live. Imperial cult's right there. We want to love Jesus. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. Let's pray. And we were before us, a difficult passage. Um, I think this applies as much to us today as it did to the church in Pergamum, but sometimes we have trouble seeing it through the lens in which we live. And so I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom in seeing where we ignore sin in our lives, in church, where we participate in sin in our lives, in our church, where we seek to find belonging in something outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ and being created in his image. God, we seek so much that just glorifies ourselves, that fills our own wants and desires. And I just, just pray that we'd be challenged this morning as parents, as grandparents, as congregants, as members of a community, that we would give up self Give up of our own junk to bring glory to the King of Kings. That we could pray with all honesty, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. God, may we seek you for our provisions. May we be quick to repent of our sins and seek your pardon. And as individually, as a church, God, we, we have to do the things that we need to do, but God, may we ultimately trust in your protection, leaning into who Jesus is and the promises he made. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.